Hey on the call listeners, this is Jeremy Neff, and I'm here with my colleague Pam Leist. We'll get to the episode soon, but we want to share a quick announcement first. Jeremy and I are excited to share that we will once again be speaking at the LRP National Institute, this time in Savannah, Georgia, on May 5th through the 8th. Conference is really a fantastic opportunity for school education professionals like yourselves to come together and share insights and knowledge. Jeremy and I are honored to be speaking at the National Conference for the third year in a row. My session is Can You Keep a Secret? Navigating Confidentiality under IDEA 504 and FERPA. I'll be sharing practical tips for keeping your teams compliant with these laws. After leading a session for school attorneys on lessons learned from COVID, my topic for the National Institute is successfully mapping the exit from IDEA services. I'll discuss the different ways a student ends eligibility and how to ensure that's a successful transition. These sessions promise to be insightful and practical as always, and we always offer actionable takeaways you can implement in your schools. If you want to learn more about the National Institute, you can find a link in the show notes for the newest on-the-call episode or go to lrpinstitute.com. Pam and I hope to see you there in Savannah. Until then, enjoy this episode of On the Call. Ennis Britton, how can I help you? Hey, Jeremy. Um... I'm concerned we're about to miss a reevaluation deadline. We're having a hard time securing consent. All right. Is it, so the parents don't agree with the plan? Well, it's hard to say. We can't track down the mom. Dad's never really been involved. And the child, they're living with someone from church who knows that mom's going through a rough patch. Mm-hmm. But I, I really don't think that the living arrangement is anything formal like foster care or adoption. Okay. Okay. Well, I I think if we start with IDEA's definition of parent, that might give us some good next steps. Let's talk some more. Welcome to Season 2 of On the Call, Ennis Britton's special education law podcast. I'm Erin Wessendorf-Fortman. And I am Jeremy Neff. And we are ready to dig into this call. So sometimes family dynamics can be challenging. Cheesy. I don't even get through like four words. No, because in my head, all I see right now is like Jerry Springer or Maury Povich holding an envelope. Who's the father? (laughs) And it's like grandpa because that's super weird. (laughs) Just saying. Oh, yeah. This this is a little less Maury Povich, Jerry Springer, and a little more. Yeah, no. What do the regs say? Yeah, well, it it is. No, ultimately, this is a a fairly straightforward uh, topic, I think, but uh, a hot one. And I think it it does reflect that um, the traditional notion of, you know, kind of the nuclear family and, you know, mom and dad and, you know, 2.3 kids and a cat and a dog and a white picket fence. 2.5, I think it was, not 2.3. I don't really know how you have a half a kid. It's either a kid or not a kid. But that feel again, I feel like that's a very political message right there. (laughs) Maybe. I mean, I don't intend it to. Be. It's it's just it's a recognition that how families operate is yeah. is changing and it's changed pretty significantly you know over the course of the past we'll say a decade or something mm-hmm. I don't know it's Probably more, more than, than that, that. Um, and so we do get more and more questions and also people uh, objectively are more mobile so we have people moving a lot which then can lead to situations where kids in one place um, one parent is in one place one parent's in another place and. It just leads to a lot of questions of, well, we just need to move forward. We know we need parental consent for, in, you know, in the case of our caller, they're trying to get an evaluation or reevaluation in. We know we need that consent. How can we move forward? Because what's going on here? Well, in looking at it from the perspective of 
you have many different types of laws that will affect this. So we look at, for school purposes, you have your residency who is considered a parent. You have the domestic relations court, no matter your state or wherever, that talks about who has legal custodian guardianship parental rights over here. And then you have IDEA, which seemingly has its own third rule, not third rule, third way, path, whatever lane, of determining who is a parent. Mm -hmm. I love the IDEA parenting because it's much broader. It's flexible. And I like it because, and I've even told people, hey, print out the regulations, no matter your state, for what defines a parent. Have it available at every meeting. If you have a situation where it is not a biological parent who is signing the IEP, in case there is a question when you have uh, someone from Job and Family Services or some child welfare system who is there acting as the legal guardian, but now what do we need to do and who has what right i like it because it is hierarchical yeah yeah and very forward thinking when you consider we're way overdue for um you know the next rewrite of idea and you know it anticipated a lot of uh, the challenges that we can face so but so you have then who wins is the person at the top of this list right yeah, I li- tell us more about this definition. I, I like the clear winners and and not losers but you know second place i'm envisioning like family feud I mean, which is perfect, right? You know, and, and you know, they've got uh, Steve Harvey, not Steve Harvey, Steve. It is, it is Steve Harvey, isn't it? Is that his name? I think so. Okay. Whatever. If not, we, our you bad. know, and you know, do we have a parent? Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> and, and, and there are quite a few. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. That's right. right. Can you walk us through? So the... you have bio parent, you have adoptive parent, mm-hmm. um, but they're sort of same level, right? Because. If we have an adoptive parent in the picture, the bio parent is out of the picture and has no real parent rights at that point. Mm-hmm. In some states, you have foster parent, not in Ohio. Let's make that clear, at least for the listeners the here. Does mm-hmm. leave it up to the states. Then you have a guardian authorized to act as a parent or to make educational decisions, but not if the child is a ward of the state. So your job and family services, children, child welfare, they can't make those decisions. That's when we have a surrogate involved. Most likely, again, depending on the state, we get a little wonky here in Ohio where we are with what that looks like. But uh, you also continue going down. The next person is an individual acting in the place of a bio or adoptive parent, but with whom the child lives. So aunt, uncle, grandparent, so long as the child lives with them. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not one to get too hung up on in these podcasts, like the precise wording of a regulation. But I do think it's interesting that for this particular definition, it does list grandparent, step-parent, other relative, but that is an including. It's not an exhaustive list. So it's like, well, these are some people it could Mm -hmm. be, but it is not exhaustive. Correct. And then you have at the bottom surrogate parent, right? And then I do think as part of that, and I do like the ability of of who wins or the, you know, number two is the the first loser and you go on from there. Mm -hmm. But if a biological parent is involved outside of, I think, an adoptive parent, they're going to win. They are going to be the signature you need for these cases. I think we just need to verify in each of the situations what lane we're in and what decision we're trying to make can be based on the lane we're in. So for enrollment purposes, for educational decision-making purposes, I mean, all of those things, you have to look at the lane to know where we're going. Yeah. And then there is the, you know, just because we can't have a simple hierarchy, then there is the kind of uh, twist of, well, what if there's a court order, Mm -hmm. right? And so if there's a court order, all of a sudden, maybe the bio parent doesn't win. Um, uh, So if there's a court order that either cuts off the bio parent or a court order that designates someone else to be the parent, 
uh, for for educating you know, to make educational decisions, then that's the parent that's at the top of the pyramid. Court order, though, not just something you had your uh, your your little notary. Yeah, say, what if do? it's notarized, though? Come on, <laughs> court order signed by a judge or a magistrate. That's where we go. But really, why do we care, Jeremy? When looking at a parent, isn't a parent a parent? Like, does it really matter? Why do we care? And I really think there are a few areas that are the reasons why we really care. Looking at top of the line, IDEA talks about as a required team member is the parent. Mm, Parent, yeah. So, yeah, parent (laughs) participation. We need to make sure we've at least invited the parent to the table. And that can get weird with these, again, unusual family arrangements, let's say, where um, maybe that bio parent has not had rights cut off. They're not really involved in their child's life. You better still be inviting them to be a part of these meetings, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in, and I hate to keep saying, I know that we are listened to listened to around the country, but in Ohio, our state has made very clear: even if the student is in the custody of Job and Family Services, we are still required to invite the parent to all of our meetings under IDEA, unless there is a permanent custody change that happens. And so that is something we can't miss. And I don't care what state you're in, you need to be documenting in the in the form of your meeting invitations, whether it's through email, regular mail, many multiple phone calls, and you're having all of that kept as your record. You need to make sure that happens. And we also care because of consent, right? So going back to our caller on this one, we need who needs to sign for this reevaluation? So that's another reason it's important to know who is that parent. Well, and then who has the power to fight you? Mm-hmm. I mean, whether it's consent or n- not giving consent or demanding certain services or an IEP or not an IEP, the ability to exercise their rights under the due process procedures, I think, is really important. And it, it's not black letter law, but it is worth noting that um, knowing the black letter law might help you through just kind of the more practical side of this, which is sometimes parents in situations like this, bring their fights about guardianship or custody into the schools. And it's nice just to know, nope, this is what the law says, this is what we'll do. So with with that review of what the law says, let's look at one example of a court applying this law. So for today, we've got a case out of Pennsylvania. It's out of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, so one step below the U.S. Supreme Court. And the, the basic facts of it were we had a child uh, with a disability He was living with an adult cousin who was also financially supporting the child. But just to make it complicated, the biological father, at least, is still around and retains educational rights. And just to make it a little more complicated, the grandmother has physical and legal custody per a court order. So again, just a quick recap here. We got um, a student who lives with a cousin is in the physical and legal custody per court order of the grandmother and who has a biological father who retains educational rights. So I've got three different people who can fill the role of parent. It sure sounds like it. And that was the question, right? So the court was asked, basically, the cousin, could the cousin of this child file a due process complaint on the child's behalf? But I like this case, Jeremy, because the facts are very funny to me. Mm -hmm. Again, I say this every time we're looking at a case, you don't know all of the facts, but It seems as if the school district was happy to have the cousin as parent 
when it wanted the cousin as parent. But then when the cousin was mad because it didn't like what the district was doing, the district was like, you're not a parent. Yeah, well, d- dive into that a bit, right? So so the cousin is who actually requested the initial evaluation. This is a child, by the way, that was not identified at the time this uh, case was filed. So the cousin requested the evaluation. The district said, great, cousin, would you sign consent? Cousin signed consent. Sounds like a parent. Mm-hmm. District team conclude well, the team in as a whole yep. concludes the child's not eligible. Cousin doesn't like it. Uh, but again, the cousin is who is invited to that meeting. The cousin requests a an IEE. It doesn't specifically say it was publicly funded, but I'm guessing it was. And the district agrees, again, at the request of the cousin. Sounds like a parent. It's not until later, right? It's not until later when we still, the district does not find the student qualifies as a student with a disability under IDEA. Offers a 504, invites cousin as parent to 504 meeting, and then cousin says, I'm not coming. I disagree with the 504, and then cousin files for due process. Yeah, yeah. And then district says, nope, you're not a parent. Bye. Yeah, and and so in the school one at the hearing officer level, right? So as I understand it, Pennsylvania has a single-tier system, so the only hearing outside of court, the school one. And the hearing officer said, yeah, this, this cousin is not a parent. There's a court order that says the grandparents are. That's, so, who, that's who should do it. So because of that court order, it was the intervening piece. The grandparents are the ones that should have filed for due process. Correct. But then shouldn't that have also gone back to say that the cousin should, could not have appropriately given consent for an evaluation or appropriately asked for an IEE? I just, uh, that's one of those so what questions. I know. <laughs> but is it? I don't, I, know. I don't know. Like if they're a parent to do this, then they're a parent to do that. You can't. Well, I think the courts felt that way, right? Yes. Yes, because this goes to – so they appeal – the cousin appeals it to the district court in Pennsylvania. District court actually affirms the hearing officer's decision and says, yeah, you're right. There's there's a, a, a court order, and when we look at the regulations under IDEA, we understand that catch-all that we talked about earlier in this episode to mean that is the one and only parent is who's designated in that court order. Things changed, though, when it went to the Circuit Court of Appeals, right? Yeah, it did, and Circuit Court said, no, absolutely not – the we don't have to give and I know why you picked this case you are like a nerd about Chevron right now and it is killing me did this come <laughs> up in like your search you're like what case am I going to pick for the pod this time and you went wait a minute there's a Chevron case without being a Chevron case this is fantastic and so what the court said I know it's true <laughs> it's yeah, a little bit we'll yeah. probably have a pod specifically where you're talking about Chevron deference and Chevron is not a pattern it is an actual it is a pattern but it's an actual case to show deference to when the statutory language is unclear, you show deference to the agencies responsible for enforcing that statute and regulation. Look at that. I need wheeled yeah, it down job. to like a minute. You're gonna want to talk about it over a I, whole pod. I can't help it. My one of my favorite law professors, Chris Bryant, shout out if he's out there listening to this. Um, he, he he talked to us about this in a class on administrative law, and and yeah, I've just kind of it's stuck with you ever it's since. Stuck with me. It's ridiculous, but we'll probably have a pod about it. So one day I'm gonna sit here and go, let's talk about Chevron, Jeremy. But in any regard. The court said, I don't even need to get into Chevron deference because the language of IDEA when it was passed out of Congress was clear. 
Parent means one of these, I think, five or six categories. And if you're a parent in one of these categories, you're a parent and you have guardian ad litems who will tell you who has decision-making authority. And it is staunchly different from the written court order. And then the guardian ad litem telling you in the same breath that they also have the power to make a decision. And I don't know if you recall just a few minutes ago, they were not within our list of a parent. And so a guardian ad litem is not a parent under the regulations, at least not in the state of Ohio and not under the federal regulations. So having the documented court orders that the parents are obligated to give you when they're updated or the child welfare system, job and family services, whatever it is called within your state, they have to give you the updated copies to make sure that you know who the parent is if things are changing. And if they don't have an updated copy, you're operating from the last sort of ones that you you probably have. I think it's important. It's not also a bad idea to have your state's regulation of a definition of parent Print it out within your folder that you take or with maybe save PDF under your desktop if you show up and you are, you know, a tree lover and not kill any trees that you save it to pull it up to walk parents through that hierarchical structure, I yeah. think is at least a good idea for the complicated situations. And, and it's OK to capture this in, you know, uh, what we would call the profile section of an IEP where you're given some background just so that way you're not expecting the team every year to figure out all this family history again and again. And I think sometimes in a true story, literally this morning of the day that we're recording this, I got a call from a client and they're trying to sort out, well, you know, we got this weird paperwork and we're not sure it's complete and we're starting to get a little concerned. Well, the, the child had been enrolled in the school some time ago. It's just now that there's a request for an evaluation under IDEA, which requires the school under a different standard of what a parent is to figure out who the parents are. And now there's a concern about, you know, this might be a missing child situation. Oh, no. Right? And so the trouble is, of course, you called the missing child in right now, and it looks like, are you retaliating against them for Mm -hmm. asserting rights under IDEA? I don't think so. But I do think timing is important, right? And we're going to do the right thing for a missing child no matter what, even if it means we're accused of that. So make sure um, if at some point in discerning who might a parent be, there's a concern about either neglect or a missing child or something like that. Act quickly on that. I know it feels weird and awkward, especially if it's a child that's been in the district a while. But the longer you wait, the more it's going to look like if you finally do act on that, that maybe it's retaliatory. Well, because what then was the trigger to send you to that phone call? Right. It, it had to have been something else that wasn't the initial knowledge. Initial knowledge we can not hide behind but use as our shield. We are mandated reporters. And so we have to go down this. I also think it's a good idea when you're referencing all of these documents within either a prior written notice or a profile page, date them. Yes. The court order dated, I don't, what, December of 23 or January of 24. Those things are going to be important to know that if you do get updated copies. And if you have a question, having an open discussion or communication with your if you have an enrollment department or your e- oh, Ohio calls it EMIS, whatever your data management system is for students, you know, when you look in those pieces, you all need to make sure you understand the lanes of parent for enrollment, educational decisions, IDEA. Those sorts of things are important, but also then knowing as a student services department, do you have the right and proper information to act on? 
As another important tip, I know that this can come up in terms of divorced parents more so necessarily than other situations, but we've seen biological parents and child welfare agencies get into it a little bit in meetings as well. But we need to make sure that as a school district, you are the proverbial Switzerland, right? You're neutral in these situations. I'm not sure necessarily if Switzerland likes to be called neutral. Maybe they find it offensive. I have not asked. But in any event, you are not, as a school district, having a preference for one parent over another. Both parents are invited when it's appropriate because both are considered parents regardless of necessarily anyone having residential custody for school purposes, right? You're looking at a parent is a parent. So when you're looking at that, when you have both parents invited, you look at a situation in terms of we invite them until one parent is uninvited because of their actions, because of their behaviors at meetings. And that can be what? I mean, you've seen it in meetings. We look at threats. We look at language, very inappropriate behaviors. But both are invited until they can't be. And then, I mean, I think in those situations, we can talk practical tips in other podcasts. I don't. Maybe too long for the purposes of today. But for situations like this, I think talking about parent management it's important we're inviting both until we're not. And in those respects, that isn't necessarily an IDEA concern, but it's important to make sure that we are checking boxes and not just checking, but really for the purposes of parent participation, we talk invitation and inclusion, consideration of the the ideas at the meetings. Yeah. So with all of that in mind, let's get back to our caller. So we've got this triennial reevaluation deadline that we don't want to miss. And we're a little bit concerned about who the parent is. And it it seems that what we really need to focus on is, you know, beyond learning more and making sure we've gathered all the information we can about the kids' actual living arrangements, any kind of court orders, really pressing to make sure we've got all those details. Um, Once we've done all of that, maybe we've identified a parent. But if we're unclear... Uh, the key is going to be we're still going to meet that deadline one way or another. So we do our best with all of those things. But at the end of the day, if there's still a question or if we're struggling to get the person, maybe we have identified the parent, but we can't get the consent from them and there's not another person who meets one of the other definitions, then consider moving forward with a records review evaluation to meet the deadline. And then you can use the prior written notice to explain how you ended up where you did and specifically to offer to reopen the evaluation with proper parental consent to do new assessments. Thank you for tuning in to On The Call. If you have found value in our discussion and think your educator colleagues would as well, please share this podcast through text, word of mouth, staff meetings, chats in the teacher's lounge. Your support is what drives this podcast. We work to bring real-life situations and practical tips to each episode. If you have a topic you would like to suggest or want to share your thoughts, please connect with us on social media or email us at podcast at ennisbritton.com. A quick note, this podcast is intended to be used for general information only and is not legal advice. If you have a specific question, please consult an attorney. We are looking forward to being on the call with you again soon.